Your power in your negotiation comes from being grounded in knowing what you want, being so clear and so comfortable with who you are, what you want out of your life, your business, and how you're going to do that and how you want to be in the world. That when something comes up that looks like this great opportunity, but doesn't feel quite right, you just go, yeah, that's just not the right thing for me. And you say no, and you move on. And that's real power in negotiation, is that being grounded in what you know and who you are. Welcome to the Grounded Content Podcast, where tactical and effective meets grounded and honest in advertising, marketing, and content creation. I'm your host, Marian Abrams. Today's guest is Christine McKay. I love that line about being grounded. On this podcast, we talk about content marketing, marketing, and advertising. All of those, when you boil it down to the essentials, are about getting people to take an action, changing an opinion or a behavior. And we, I, love to ask, how do we do that? How do we, our brand or our organization, how do we exert influence? How do we change behavior? How do we get people to take an action? Today, we're going to explore this idea of influence from a different angle, and that's from the angle of negotiation. Christine McKay is a negotiation expert. In this episode, she talks about gamesmanship versus collaboration, and she talks about the idea that most of the effective work in a negotiation happens before the conversation even starts. One of the incredible statistics she shared with me is that a study found that in a negotiation, 42% more value is often left on the table. Think about that. That could make or break your business. So in this episode, we'll talk about negotiation as a way to gain insight into human motivation, but also we'll get some recommendations on how to think about negotiation and your negotiating mindset. Because face it, This is also really good practical information. If you're a content creator, if you're a marketer, if you're an advertiser, whether you're an independent or you're running a department, you are making negotiations. I am making negotiations every day, whether it's for your salary or you're hiring a vendor or you're working with suppliers. So in this episode, think about the mindset of the negotiator when you listen to Christy and think about how that might influence your ideas as you develop marketing strategies But also think about how we all could benefit by improving our negotiation technique. I mean, I know I need this. One last thing before this episode starts. If you like this interview, if you found it useful, if you found it helpful, I'd ask that you do one thing for me. Tell one friend about this show, whether you post it on social media or you tag me in a post or you just tell a friend over coffee. Spread the word because that's how we grow. I'll be back after the interview to chat a little bit more. Welcome, Christine. I'm so glad you could join me on Grounded Content. Christine is a negotiation expert. She's actually a global negotiation strategist. And what is really interesting is she has worked with Fortune 500 companies as a negotiator, and she's bringing that knowledge to the rest of us, what the big guys are doing. She's sharing that insight. And she's got a podcast called The Ven Zone, and she's got a lot of other things we'll talk about. So hi, Christine. Hi, Marion. It's such an honor to be here with you and your audience. Thank you for having me. So I like to jump right into things. And I'm going to ask you this. Why is it so hard for some people and so easy for others to ask for more? 
I think a lot of it comes down to the stories we tell ourselves. So I often say that the hardest part of any negotiation is the negotiation that happens between our ears. Some of us are conditioned that it's okay for us for more. And the rest of us aren't conditioned that way. We're told to be grateful for whatever kind of scraps we're given off the table, fight really hard for it, or if you ask for more, you're going to be judged in a certain way. And so for those of us who grew up with that kind of message, it's really hard to stand in your power and ask for more of what you want because it's terrifying at times. Which one were you? Were you raised as a comfortable to ask for more or were you raised afraid to ask for more? I had this duality the way that I was raised. I was told in my house that I should ask for more and all that. But I also grew up with a dad who told me to get over the fact that I was a woman because it was a man's world and I just should have to deal with that. So I had this dual messages coming. I'm supportive of you, but yeah, you're just a woman, so get over it. So I've had to learn. I think the thing that really helped me, though, was that professionally, I started negotiating in Southeast Asia in the early and mid-90s. When there were not women in many of the countries that I was negotiating in, there were not women who were even acting as secretaries in those organizations. And so I had to learn a lot about how to adapt, how to be curious about other cultures, how to get really curious about me within those situations, and curious about the people that I was negotiating with. And I think that starting my negotiation career there made a massive difference in my ability to figure out creative ways of asking for more. And sometimes I do it a little more directly than others, and sometimes I'm more subtle in how I ask for things. But over the course of my career, I've learned that transparency of knowing what I want and the transparency of sharing that with my counterparts is really important because for me, negotiation is a conversation about a relationship. And if I want to be in a relationship with somebody, then I need to be able to be transparent to share what I want. And I want that person to be transparent with me so that I can work to get him or her what he or she wants too. So we always think about this like Probably for most people, the first thing that comes to mind when they hear the word negotiation is thinking about their salary or something like that. And there's always this idea that actually transparency is wrong. You should keep a lot of things secret. You shouldn't say what your range is because they'll give you the bottom of it or the top of it, depending on which side you're on. Is that wrong? It's not necessarily wrong. I think that it's more about being very clear on what you are asking for. I'm kind of on this mission to take gamesmanship out of negotiation because gamesmanship in relationships doesn't work. My husband and I have been married for 28 years. And if we started a relationship the way that we go into business relationships, we'd never have gotten together, let alone be married for this long. We go into business relationships believing that our counterparts are out to get us, that they're going to screw us over. And so we can't trust them. They can't trust us. And that's part of what leads us to kind of play the game. And so there is an element of figuring out, and you'd learn it by trial and error and practice, of when to disclose information and when it's not in your best interest to disclose information. Transparency doesn't mean you throw up everything on the table and pray that your counterpart's not going to use it against you. I mean, we are dealing with human beings here, and that's the common factor in every negotiation, is that there are people on both sides or all sides of the table, and we all bring our humanity and our life experiences to that table. And negotiation is inherently emotional. 
As soon as you want something from somebody, your emotion is fully engaged before your logic gets engaged. And when you recognize that, and then you put it in this context of it's an emotional relationship, how do I manage that? How do I get the most out of that relationship? So you do want to be transparent, but you also do need to kind of figure out who your counterpart is too, because you're not the only one at the table. So how do you do that? How do you figure out what is going to work? I don't want to say against, but with your counterpart. So for me, the first step is preparation. It's research. So when I'm negotiating with somebody, I research the heck out of who they are as people. What's their LinkedIn profile look like? Have they ever been published? Can I find their Facebook profile? Everything. I'll check out all their social media Not in a stalking way, but in a way that I can get to know who they are, what motivates them, what excites them. And I also can get a sense of who they are from a style perspective. How do they like to be communicated with? Do they like long meetings and do they like emails that are written in paragraphs? Or do they like texts in short and they like 10-minute meetings? I can tell that by looking at a LinkedIn profile. So negotiation is about accumulating yeses. If I'm just meeting somebody, I can start by saying, how does this person like to get communicated with? So that's kind of step one. I call them modern and traditional communicators. If they're modern, like I am, I'm going to send them a 10, 15 minute meeting invite and three bullets of what I want to talk about. But if they're a traditional person as a modern, I'll send them a half an hour. It's my compromise because if you send me an hour, I'm probably not going to take that call. (laughs) That's a little too long. And it's also understanding their business. How does their business make money? What's profit look like for them? What's profitability look like in their industry? What is the industry average? If you're going into business with somebody, you want somebody to be able to be making a good profit. You want them to be around. And so I research how my customers, my suppliers, my clients make money so that I can understand how to craft a deal that appeals to their need to make a certain profit. And I respect that. That's interesting because I think a lot of people would think, well, that's really on them. You should ask for as much as you can get or aim to get as much as you can get. And it's on them to be responsible for their own profit and make a decision based on that. But you're saying you actually factor that in. So how much of negotiation is coming in with the appropriate ask and how much of it is pushing people to get more, you know, to bring them to your side. Yeah. And there are some different schools of thought on this. So there are some people in the market whose view is I want to get my counterpart to say no, because if they say no, now they feel like they have power. Now that I think might work in hostage negotiations. I'm not a hostage negotiator, so I have no idea, but I do love Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. And that's one of his styles. His style is you get somebody to say no because it lets them believe that they have power. But I don't believe business is about hostage negotiation. I think that business is a completely different kind of negotiation. And we hear people say, believing in a customer for a lifetime. Well, if you believe in a customer for a lifetime, that sets up a very different kind of a relationship than a hostage negotiation or even a trade deal. It's just a different kind of situation. And so from a business perspective, my view is that I want to go in having a hypothesis. I want to have a hypothesis of what my counterpart could potentially do. And I'll use an example. It's not like a hardcore business example, but most of us have bought a car at some point in time. 
And car buying is considered one of the ultimate win-lose negotiations. Some people say, I love going and buying a car because they like to get one over on the dealer. That is a specific style of negotiator. The rest of us are like, we just don't like the whole process. I had this harebrained idea that I wanted to see, would it be possible to buy two brand new cars for the price of one? So I did my homework. I first researched what is it that I want to be doing? What is it I want out of the car? And what does that mean relative to the dealer? What does the dealer want out of the sale? What are the things that they're going to throw in? How does financing go? What does the extended warranty structure look like? All of these kind of things. And when I ask people, what are some of the things you think about when you buy a car? They come up with all these things. But the one thing they never talk about is, are you going to drive it off the lot today or are you going to order it? Because that sets up a different financial dynamic for the dealership. So then I researched how the dealer makes money. I looked at everything from how the salesperson gets compensated to the manager gets compensated. I looked at everything there was about the model, the make, the competition, the driver, who's the average driver, what's their financial position, what's the cost of holding inventory on the lot. I looked at everything. And what I determined was that it was possible for a dealer to sell me two cars for the price of one and still have that be a good deal for him or her. This is so interesting because we always think of the negotiation as just the conversation where you get there and you say, I want to pay this much and they say it's going to cost this much. But you're saying it's really not the conversation. It's all the stuff that happens before the conversation. It is 70% of negotiation is preparation. It's everything that happens before you even engage with that counterpart. So with the car thing, I was wrong on my inventory holding costs. So we increased the offer by $5,000 and we bought two cars for the price of one plus $5,000. And we saved $23,000 because I did an hour and a half worth of homework. So now you said 70% of it is what happens before the conversation. What's that 30%? What was that conversation like? I researched how dealers sell to women versus men. So I decided to leverage that. They have a process. So we're just going to go with their process. So I did not test drive the car. I did not talk to the salesperson. The thing is, is that most of the time, decision makers often not at the negotiation table anyway. And so I call them the invisible negotiator. There's always somebody in the back room somewhere or higher up the chain or at home, or there's always somebody influencing the negotiation. So my husband engaged with the salesperson. And then the decision was I'd come into the conversation when the subject of money came up because the salesperson has no authority to talk money anyway. They have to take the offer to the manager. The manager ultimately decides to accept the offer or not. So my husband drove the car and I was sitting there and, and the audience can't see me, but I have very bright pink hair and I'm, you know, definitely kind of an edgy person. I'm a burning man person, all this kind of stuff. If you saw how I looked, you would not expect me to be reading Red Book or Good Housekeeping. But I sat and I read Red Book and Good Housekeeping while my husband was engaged with a car salesperson. And when he said, well, how much is it going to cost? And the salesperson said list price. And then, well, what if we bought two? Well, then it was list price times two. And that's when I closed my Red Book or my Good Housekeeping. And I turned around and I said, I think we can do a lot better than that. We want to buy two for the price of one. And I said, and I know you have to take that offer because you have to take every offer you get to your manager. So if you would please go do that and then bring him out and then, you know, you guys can go have a laugh or a cigarette or whatever you're going to do, <laughs> but bring him back and then we'll have that conversation. And so then the manager came back and he was really irritated. 
he was not happy. His anxiety level was high. He was angry. And it was a Friday night. And I looked at my husband. I said, it's Friday night. It's date night. I want to go. Because I knew that almost over 90% of the time when you leave a dealer, you will not buy a, a car from that same place. And they knew that number. They know that number better than I do. So there's no way they wanted me to leave. But I looked at the manager and I said, well, it's Friday night and you're stuck here on a Friday. What are you doing this weekend? You must have the weekend off. So he's angry. He's agitated. And now I'm trying to figure out how to get him to calm down. So I personalized that. I started to build a relationship with him at that point. And he was taken aback by it. And it turns out he's a dog sled racer. I'm from North Central Montana for a couple of years. An Iditarod winner was from Montana. So we talked for 10 or 15 minutes about the Iditarod. That changed the dynamic of our relationship completely. And then once that dynamic changed, I could say, well, let's get back to this car thing. Is it okay if I tell you why I think it's possible for you to sell me two cars for the price of one. So I walked him through my spreadsheet and my analysis, and that's when he told me I was off on my holding costs. And so we raised the offer, and we drove off the lot with two brand new cars for the price of one. And those same principles apply to any negotiation. So let's break it down. What are some of those principles? Obviously, there's the research. And then what are the other principles? Well, first, it's get clear on what you want. What do you want? And how important are those things to you? Because those become your trade-offs. Then it's get clear on what you think your counterpart can do. So research your counterpart. That car buying example, I couldn't very well research the car salesperson or the manager. But in a business situation, I absolutely can research the people that I'm negotiating with. So get clear on who they are as people and get clear on what you think they can do from a business perspective. And then it's really about how you ask questions. When I'm in a business negotiation, my first few meetings, at least my first two, I'm very quiet. You'd never know that having me on your show, but I'm very quiet. I listen a lot. I have like 10, maybe very open-ended questions that I ask. Is there like a sort of a list of questions that you almost always ask or are they different in every situation? They do differ and it depends on what it is we're negotiating. But a lot of times if I'm doing a software contract, a lot of times it's like who uses the software, how do they use it, and when do they use it? So asking questions to get a sense of what's possible. And I always go into a negotiation looking for what's possible. There's research, I think it's out of the University of Copenhagen, that suggests that when we're negotiating, there's generally 42% more value available to us than we actually realize. That's sort of heartbreaking. It's very heartbreaking. (laughs) And negotiation is about how do you take something so common and find more value in it? So it's really getting clear about you, what you want, how important things are, getting clear and developing a hypothesis, an educated hypothesis on what is going to work for your counterpart, and then being prepared as you're going into those meetings to ask very open questions that invite conversation. And go in trusting your counterpart that together you're both going to create something more than if you were to not do business together. And it's interesting because we talked in the very beginning of the interview about how most people think of negotiation as an adversarial kind of a game. 
And you told the story of your car negotiation. And first of all, I want to say, I love that you told that story because it really illustrated so many points clearly. And I know that's what you do in your podcast is you talk to people and hear their real negotiation stories, which is why it's so valuable, I think. But in that story, on the one hand, it was cooperative because you had come in with a plan that would work for both of you. But on the other hand, there was a lot of gamesmanship there. I mean, you're pretending that you were going to leave because it was date night and you're waiting to open the magazine and all these kind of tactics that you used. So there are definitely tactics that you use. And that's true in any influencing, no matter what influencing, whether we do it with our kids, we do it with our partners. But the idea is really to not have it be all about the gamesmanship. And I've not done that car story again. I could have. I've bought cars since then. But at that moment, it was the right thing to do. And so in the situation, you have to know when it makes sense to use a tactic or not, and then be prepared to have it either work or backfire and make adjustments accordingly, because you're still dealing with people. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like so much of it comes from your experience. And so you kind of have a feel for it. How do you break that down? So somebody who has no experience, who is terrified to go buy the car or to negotiate with a vendor, you know, they're building their business, they are hiring out services or paying for services for the first time or scaling up, and they're terrified about this. And these things, that 42% could have a massive impact on whether their business is successful or not. I mean, they could be working like crazy and they could have a great product. And if they're falling on the wrong side of that 42% of value every single time in the negotiation, that could be the difference between success and failure. Absolutely. And this is one of the things that I love about the work that I do, because here's the thing. Every single one of us are afraid to ask for more of what we want at different points in time. It's just a fact because we're all people. But the thing is, is that all of us used to be phenomenal negotiators. Because as children, we learn how to negotiate with person A in a certain way, person B in a certain way, and this other adult in this other way, and this other adult in this other way. And we know that we cannot ask, in most cases, for something in the same way from all of these different adults. So you have this program, the Venn Masters, Without giving away all your secrets that are in the course, what are like the three or four kind of biggest lessons that people who don't have the opportunity to practice, because it sounds like a lot of this is practice, but say you're running your marketing department and you're suddenly hiring a bunch of designers out there and you don't have the opportunity to do trial and error and get it wrong because it could be success or failure of your business. So what are a couple of things that you would give them as guidance So one of the things we do is we talk about the big difference between haggling and negotiating. And Hollywood has placed a huge emphasis on negotiation as a haggle. Or, you know, we see negotiation is always in the military or police departments, crime units, and all that kind of stuff. So one of the things we do is we help people understand what those differences are. Because once you feel the difference, and I use that word, feel the difference, you never want to haggle again it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't feel good, especially if you're on the losing side. The other thing is really about understanding your negotiation style and what works about that for you and what doesn't work for you. And then learning how to use the other styles, which you possess and you know how to use, you just likely forgotten how to use them and don't use them intentionally. And we actually practice 
doing negotiation style that's not your default, which is really interesting exercise. So one of my big passions, having worked with so many of the Fortune 500, is that I see small businesses get a contract and they freak out. You know, they see whereas, where to for, here to for, all that legal mumbo jumbo and Latin and whatnot, and they just wig out. So the first thing they do is they just hand it off to a lawyer and go, should I sign this? But the thing is, is that the majority of risk in a contract is business-related risk. It's not legal risk. And unless your attorney is very well-versed in business and understands business and your business, your attorney is missing a huge part of the equation. So the, your attorney will tell you, is it going to put you in jail? No. Is it going to cause you to go to court? No. Then fine. You're good. I had this idea that negotiation is that one conversation. And really what you're saying is not only the research, but also something as simple as if you don't understand the contract and the business risks, you're really negotiating with your hands tied behind your back. And I never thought of how important a piece of that conversation that is to have that tool in your background. A contract is a risk mitigation tool that tells the story of your relationship. Because a contract is written today, so it's written in a moment, but it's informed by information that comes from the past. Like, what do I need for payment? How much of this product do I think I need? Trying to divine a future. And the future never plays out. We know the future doesn't play out. Heck, we're just coming out of, you know, the pandemic universe. We know the future doesn't play out always the way we expect it to. And I think that we'll start to see some changes in contracting. And one of the other things that I just read just this week, McKinsey released a study and over 70% of major corporations have plans in the next three to five years to implement negotiation centers of excellence with chief negotiation officers being a new C-suite title that sits at the big table. And for smaller businesses, that's important for you to know that because when they start consolidating this negotiation leverage and this negotiation process, that puts the smaller businesses who don't have access to that at an even more of a disadvantage if they don't figure out how to negotiate effectively. So what are a couple things that smaller businesses can do to kind of even that playing field? So one of the big things is recognizing that negotiation is a process. It's not a point in time conversation like you've been talking about, Marian. It is a process. So establish a process. And when you're working with somebody who's a larger company, we know they have processes and it's like, okay, who signs off on this? How long is it going to take? Who has to approve this? What happens if the approver's not around? How much time does that add? And understand their process. In the first meeting, what's your process? If we move forward with your deal, what's the process under which the deal moves forward? But also make sure you have your own process. Do not just say, well, it's the big guy, so we're going to go with their process. Make sure you insinuate something that's yours in that process. Have an advisory board. Have people who you can talk to about the deal who are not sitting at the table. If you are the business owner, you're the ultimate decision maker, and you don't have anyone to run something up the flagpole to, but I guarantee your counterpart does. Give yourself that grace to be able to 
take a step away from the table and say, I have an advisory board that I've committed to having conversations with about these kind of deals. We're meeting on such and such a date. And so I'll be discussing this. This will be on my agenda with them. And it elevates you. It elevates your business. It makes you sound really put together. And it also shows that you care about the deal. If you're negotiating with somebody, don't pick up the phone because you may not be in the right headspace to have that conversation. Wait, let it go to voicemail and call them when you are ready to have that conversation and know exactly what you want to get out of it. Those are some simple tips. Those are great. Those are easy to take away, I think, and especially the advisory board. I mean, even when I was young and I was first just negotiating on a small scale production contracts when I was working with clients. And I learned really early on to always say, let me go back and review the numbers before I decide. I didn't have an advisory board. That would have been even better. But I knew I couldn't trust myself to make a commitment in that call. I needed to go back and have peace and quiet to review the numbers and think about whether the deal really made sense without the pressure of the phone call or the person there. Well, and that tells me that you're very self-aware because I'm that way too. I'm an introverted thinker and I don't agree to things at the negotiation table if I have not already evaluated them. I will always give myself the ability to go process because I don't process in the conversation. So I'm that same way. And that's something to know too. If somebody puts forward a deal, if it's something you've not evaluated it, take the time to go evaluate it. It's okay. You do not have to agree to something right then in that moment. The other one that I learned in my early days was, and this was again, doing like video film production work. If you gave a range or the client gave a range, you each always heard the end of the spectrum that you wanted to. So if I said, oh, it's going to cost, you know, between 50 and $60,000, they heard $50,000. And if they said, we have a budget of between eighty dollars and $90,000, I heard $90,000. I would walk home with that number in my head. And so would they. And we'd be on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I say that price is an output of a negotiation. It should not be the input. So when we create prices, we do it because and sometimes it's strategic reasons, but we have assumptions that go into the developing of pricing. Well, I'd rather negotiate the assumptions that go into pricing and let the price itself fall out of that conversation. So if I'm negotiating with a manufacturer, there's all sorts of things and inputs that go into developing a price for a physical product. I want to understand those elements. I want to negotiate what are your assumptions on the price of steel and the price of steel, you know, modulating as a commodity. What's the level of waste that you have coming off your manufacturing operation? What are you assuming with respect to shipping? What are you assuming with holding? How are you handling inventory? So you actually feel like you have the right to see transparency into how they develop their pricing. Yep, I do. And when you ask effective questions, you can get to it. Sometimes they're more open about sharing it than others. And there's some things they're not going to share. And you don't need like this huge elaborate model to do this. You can do it in a fairly down and dirty, easy way. Just kind of digging into what are your costs. Exactly. You know, what are your hard costs? What are your soft costs? And there's enough research out there. I can go and get a sense of kind of how they operate. And I can go find independent information that gives me benchmarks 
to say, this is what their cost is most likely going to be. Oh, and this is what the average profit margin is in this industry. So if I assume that cost and I can get to that profit margin, this is what the price should be. So now I'm negotiating what those assumptions are and that price is an output. It makes it harder to negotiate price when everybody's in alignment on the inputs that went in developing it. It's just so simple when you say it that way. So many of my listeners are in creative industries and there's so many kind of intangibles. I mean, there are some concrete things in terms of cost, but there's a lot that are not concrete. You know, the years of experience that that creative expert brings to the table or the value of their ideas. How do you advise those kind of negotiations? So very much on value. So I think about my photographer. So I work with a personal branding photographer here in Los Angeles and he's amazing. When I first met him, it was like, okay, well, I needed to get headshots. Well, then I saw his brochure because I've looked for people. I'm like, I hate headshots. They're just awful. They're just painful to do. They don't look good for anybody. And I was like, that's not what I want. I wanted something different. And I happened to see some of his work. And I was like, that's what I want. It's like showed somebody in really cool settings. It was very relaxed. It was easygoing. I got to get a sense of the person's personality, all of those kind of things. So then when I asked him, how do you set up a photo shoot? Well, this is what we do. We shoot on locations. This is how we do that. This is what that looks like. I didn't sit and ask him, well, how much does your equipment cost? And how much, you know, because I respect that he's an artist that has time. And when I saw his product, I went, that product has value. So you look at it from what is the value to your business? And so the price really comes from that side, what the price can be. Yes, exactly. And I think that he was very good about actually talking about what he does in that context of how personal branding is different from just getting a headshot and what drives the differences and what values created for clients on the back end as a result of appreciating that difference. And so he was very good about understanding how to create value for me in my business. That's great advice. Last words of wisdom as it relates to being grounded in your content. You have to be honest with yourself about what it is that you want to be doing and how you want to be doing it and who you want to be doing it for. And when you are in those moments and it feels like you're being pulled out of that, it's probably a clue not to do that. Your power in your negotiation comes from being grounded in knowing what you want, being so clear and so comfortable with who you are, what you want out of your life, your business, and how you're going to do that and how you want to be in the world, that when something comes up that looks like this great opportunity but doesn't feel quite right, you just go, yeah, that's just not the right thing for me. And you say no and you move on. And that's real power in negotiation is that being grounded in what you know and who you are. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Grounded Content Podcast. I love that closing line about your power in a negotiation. It comes from being grounded in the knowledge of what you want, who you are. God, that is so true, right? And it's true about branding and communication, whether it's you personally or your company or brand that you represent. Knowing what they stand for, who they are, knowing who you are and what you stand for, that's essential. That's what all this is about, right? So I'd love to know if you found any of these techniques helpful. Are you going to buy your next car differently? Do you plan to do research before your next negotiation? But especially, I'm really curious 
if any of these insights will influence the way you create your messages or your branding in the future. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Christine McKay, for joining me. You can find out more about her at vennegotiation.com. And thank you to my editor, Chris Zarnock, for all of your contributions to the show. I'll see you next time.